you spent time traveling in Japan, a country I've never been to, but you didn't just jump on a tour bus and visit the cities. You island hopped with a surfboard and a tent for several months. Was that what gave you the travel bug in the first place? Japan was an interesting one. I actually, the travel bit you're referring to was a period, I actually lived there for a year. I did an exchange program as my second year of university, which I just blagged my way onto because I was doing English literature. We had no relation to going to Japan whatsoever. But I just saw the opportunity and said, well, if I study Japanese literature, maybe I could compare it with English. And they were like, ah, whatever. Yeah, you can go and live there for a year. So I was living in the South Island called Kyushu, the university there. And the Haluyasumi, which is the spring holiday, is really long. It was like, I think we got like two months off class or, or maybe a little bit more. And it was at that point that, you know, I traveled a bit around Japan. I went to up to Tokyo, Kyoto to explore up there in Hiroshima. But it was in that two months off that I it, what you referred to, I took my tent and surfboard and island hop down the Lyuku Islands, which is an archipelago in a half moon shape that stretches all the way down the South China Sea to Taiwan. And it's got Okinawa Bang in the middle. And just no one goes down there. It used to be a separate kingdom to Japan. They were very warlike and the samurai kept defeating them, but they kept rising up and rebelling to the point where they confiscated all their weapons. And then they were so fierce, they started training themselves to fight without weapons. And that's actually where karate originates from. And it spread from the southern Lukyu Islands up to the Japanese mainland. So everyone thinks karate came from uh, Japan originally, which is not untrue. But the, the real truth is that it actually started in the Lukyu Island. Where I first caught the travel bug was China, really. When I was 18, I moved to China. I was very interested in martial arts. I was learning Kung Fu and then continued traveling down through Southeast Asia. And then my whole life after that was any excuse to travel. And I was more interested in living abroad a year than, than getting a good degree result, really. We now actually offer those Lyuku Islands. We've just launched an itinerary there. Refreshingly expensive, but Japan's an expensive country. And especially when you go down to those islands, the tourist infrastructure is super limited. We're actually going to go to two islands that no Western tour group has ever been to. Amazing. This is the first time you're returning to Ryuku personally or just with the, the tour groups? Yeah, I haven't been back since. I had been back to Japan since I lived there. I went on a business trip to Tokyo and met up with some old friends who yeah. didn't recognize me because I was like young, long-haired hippie when I lived there <laughs> and then I went back in a business suit. They were like, bro, you right. changed. Yeah. Uh, but you know, half the reason I founded Yellowwood Adventures four years ago was I've done so much travel in my life and in the world to these really off the beaten track, exotic places that having your own travel company is the perfect excuse to revisit those. We've just opened in Amman, for example, which fits, follows a similar story. You know, I lived in Dubai for a couple of years. We, me and my mates always used to go over the border in four by fours and go camping in the wadis and drink beer in the desert and have a wicked time. I got to know the country that way and we've just launched our first cultural tour there. The trips and the itineraries we have are really quite personal to me because of the travel experiences I had before setting up the company. You're making me jealous with these locations, Oman, Japan, all the places that you visit, everything on the list of destinations on your website are in my top 10 of places to visit. Oh, well so. Yeah, this... well, then we have similar taste, I guess. And yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, just to tell, tell you a bit, the whole ethos of the company is, is tied into the name Yellowwood Adventures. So it comes mm. from the poem, The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost, uh, which starts two roads diverge in Yellowwood, 
I took for one less traveled by and the poem finishes by just that all the difference and I think that's the gap in the market that's mm. what we're trying to do you know with over tourism and travel is so much more available to so many pe more people now these huge bottlenecks are forming in like places like Machu Picchu or yes. Everest base camp are mm. actually kind of destroying what made them attractive in the first place so you get there and you're just surrounded by like 400 Australians and Americans and you're just like <laughs> whoa what is this yeah. you know it's not what i signed up for but the world's a big place and there's loads of these other destinations that we pick the ones that are on the sweet spot of they might be perceived as dangerous but not actually dangerous i'm not going to be running trips in yemen because they're going through a civil war iraq similarly somewhere i'd love to go but there's just too much violence on the streets at the moment and the places we pick have perceived barriers sometimes it's cost you know, to go and get a guide and a vehicle by yourself costs a lot of money. Whereas if you go on a group adventure, those costs are spread across the group. Or similarly, just not knowing, like going to Iran, it is quite fiddly to get a visa and know how to navigate your way around. So to have a good business, you need to provide a solution to people. And the solution we're providing is getting to these really out there, amazing destinations in an affordable way. And in especially the last 12 months, which is something I'd really like to talk about. And I, and I hope that the general global trend of travel is heading towards is in a more sustainable and a more responsible way because just more people are demanding this. Yes. Uh, according to yes. a recent survey from Booking.com, 55% of, of travelers full stop are demanding more sustainable ways to travel because, you know, global warming, it's not a debate anymore. We're seeing it every day on our TV screens. You know, it's a real thing. So that we, we, we have to adapt to to, you know, Try not to smash up the world whilst we're seeing it, so to speak. So you're basically address you're playing your part in addressing global warming by visiting these lesser known countries and countries that need a bit of exposure, and take the pressure off places like Venice and, as you said, Machu Picchu and Everest Base Camp. Would yeah, you say that? yeah, yeah, you could definitely do it like that. I mean, we're certainly not big enough to be making a, a significant dent yet. You know, we only use local guides and local teams. They will get paid. You know, it's a good day's work. We have camp staff, we have cooks, the local guides, the, the vehicle drivers as well. And even in the local community, women making handicrafts, there's a huge trickle down effect of tourism to these economies. So focusing on traveling responsibly in those places as well and, and sustainably as much as you can. People should try and cut down their polluting ways in which they travel. But people aren't going to stop flying. You know, it's a miracle of yes. technology. And if everyone was doing this, it would be almost different. Yeah. And just on your point about sustainable travel, I'll have a guest on next week, I think, who has a website about sustainable travel and emerging destinations and destinations that are not on the radar of everybody. I can't go down to the high street store and book a tour in Iran. Maybe I can, but it's not common. Yeah, look, it's possible. There's certainly other companies offering similar tours. I mean, even, unfortunately, we've had to stop... Um, running trips in Iran at the moment just because of the hornet's mm, nest that mm. Trump whipped up through his business dealings with Saudi Arabia. So, you know, our government, the foreign and common, British government, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office or the FCO have advised against travel. Yeah. Now, if they advise against travel, our clients can't get travel insurance and there's no way we're taking someone abroad if they yes. have insurance. Yes. 
Yes. So that has unfortunately closed the door to that particular destination, but it will reopen. But Oman is the complete opposite. It's one of the sleepiest countries in the Middle East. <laughs> it's right next to the UAE, which, you know, has got bombarded with tourism. But little old uh, Oman gets overlooked, which it, which is partly what makes it so nice. It's so tranquil. The deserts, the beaches, the mountains are untouched. They're not covered in litter. It's a very natural place to to go and explore. So, you know, we're all, we're trying to give our clients genuine experiences. What do your friends and family think about the lifestyle you live? You're always on the road and you're traveling and your business is traveling to these so-called dangerous places, which personally, I think there are very few dangerous places in the world. And it's people like you who are showing these countries for what they are, that most people are really nice. Everybody just wants to get on with their lives. What do your friends and family think about what you do? It's <laughs> a, a good question. They asked me that before. I think they get, <laughs> I started this, doing this when I was 31. Yeah. And, you know, I first went to China when I was 18 and just didn't really stop traveling the world. You know, I lived in the Middle East, lived in, well, just traveling around all over the place, in mountains, in deserts, you know. It's just what I'm naturally drawn to. And so they were just accepted that that's what I was going to do. And so I think they're just happy. And you know what? I'm definitely not leading all the trips now. We, we've got too many of them. We hire fantastic freelance guides who work alongside the local teams as well. I just led one trip for eight clients in the Southwest Coffee Country in January last month. Where was that, Sam? You just broke up there a second? Oh, it was down in the Southwest Nations uh, of Ethiopia. Oh, so we flew down to Jima and then went to the Kaffa Biosphere Reserve in Bonga. It's where uh, wild coffee first ever originated from. And Ethiopian coffee is world famous. Mm. We went down and saw the wild coffee plantations. And it's just beautiful down there. Lush, green forest. There's waterfalls. And, you know, just spending time with the local people and, and finding out about coffee production and how they export it to the international market. So, you know, now I've, I'd, I'd done a research trip down there like two and a half years ago. It was only by partnering with the Ethiopian Coffee Company in London that we managed to find a pool of interested clients. It was tapping into the Ethiopian Coffee Company's mailing list. You know, I couldn't get that trip off the ground for, for two years. You know, they sent out one email and we, people sign up for it. I was like, ah, work smarter, not harder. <laughs> Similarly for yeah. um, horse riding adventure, partner with the Equestrian Club of London, so what we're doing is quite specific and niche and not for everyone. But if you can see that as a strength, it sort of helps you target who to look for. Yes. Because people do want really specific adventures. You, they want to do something that, that tallies up with their interests. So it's putting two and two together. I ran that trip. I've done a load of notes on the trip now to, to pass on to future leaders. So that trip can hopefully sort of self-perpetuate, if you like. They'll tell their friends. And we've already had people sign up for the next version of that tour later this year as well. How many people help you with the business? How many people have you got either you're partnering with or you've got working for you? I've got other friends who are entrepreneurs and in different industry and financial media. And they started with a small team of them. And that meant they could grow a bit quicker and sort of hit the ground running. You know, it started just myself part time. The right person didn't really come along. I've always traveled by myself because I wasn't willing to wait for anyone. So I sort of took the same approach with the company. Now I've got new business partners who are investors team of just amazing people we're, we're still really small there's only really like four main full-time staff coordinating all of the freelance guides we have so it's myself kathy who's the head of operation 
Prue, who's the head of PR, and Debs, who does our digital media marketing, and then Caroline, who is a professional mountain guide. She leads a lot of trips, but then helps me on the sales as well. So that's sort of the core team. And then, as I said, I've got the two silent partners and investors, and then a group of freelance guides that we outsource work to. What's the hardest part about running this business? What are the most difficult challenges you have with managing a team and visiting countries that have certain visa restrictions and lack of infrastructure and things like that? Like you said, you know, there are a lot of challenges, but that's just life. That's just work. Nothing's easy. But I think for me, the main thing, and this will sound funny, but just the main thing was just not giving up from going and doing the research trip to then like building the website. The first trip I did was three months in in Ethiopia, scoping it all out. And I think it took like almost a year. Then the ball started rolling a little bit faster after that. But there were so many points where you just think, oh, is it all worth it? And and just holding on and especially in a B2C. So it's just having the patience to stick to your guns, keep doing what you believe in, and then eventually you build that momentum. You attract how good many people. How people are actually on your mm. team at the moment? Yeah. How many people are you managing or how many people work with you or as employees? I started the company by myself, which wasn't really ideal. I've seen friends who are entrepreneurs start with partners, which means they can hit the ground running a bit faster. But then similarly, a very good friend of mine, called Freddy. He lives in Holland. He's Dutch. I'm actually godfather to his son. He started an, an idea for a, for a beer company, which is crazy in Holland because there's like a million of them yeah. by himself. Yeah. And they are incredibly successful now. It's called Lowlander. I think it just comes down if, if you believe in your vision and, and your idea enough, whether there's there's people around you or not, at the beginning, you can attract those people. And so Yellowwood probably had a bit of a slower start because it was just me by myself. But now I've managed to attract a a really cool little nucleus of a team. So Prue, it does our head of uh, marketing. Uh, Kathy is our head of operations. Debs does our digital marketing. And Caroline is a professional mountain guide. She runs a lot of our trips for us, but also helps out in a lot of other more subtle ways like she does a lot of sales for us she's much more experienced than myself in especially in terms of outdoor physical mountain leading so she really instigated which satellite phone to buy she does a bit of graphic design and made the brochures as well that's the sort of core nucleus of our team but then we have lots of other international mountain leaders or imls who who freelance for us and lead the the trips and we just had a strategy meeting actually uh, in one of the evenings of the four-day destination show at London Olympia, which is one of the biggest travel shows in the country. And it was just great to get – we had about 15 people there, and it was really great to to get the team there. And we definitely want to grow. So we had a film crew there whilst we were doing the strategy evening because we are uh, going live in a couple of weeks with a crowdfunding platform called CrowdCube. So we're shooting for about 100 grand for an investment just to have some cash, just to to build our team. We could really do with a marketeer, for example, Kathy could do with an operations assistant. And cash flow is your number one enemy. We're a small business and a lot of our trips, people book six months or a year in advance. That money actually gets tied up into a trust account. So the client monies can be protected, which we can't access. And now Crew's amazing at PR. We've got some really good relationships with key publications like Wanderlust, 
But going to these trade shows isn't cheap either. The more money we can put into marketing now, the faster we'll grow in the short to medium term. We're looking, again, with this bigger marketing budget that the investment will help contribute towards. There's trade shows in Germany, America. The sky's the limit, really. Now we've got products that we know work, the trips, the company's getting a good reputation, word of mouth is spreading. We just wanted to build our exposure as much as we can. And do you find that the trade shows work in terms of generating new clients or is it more of a way to just spread the word among newspapers and things like that? No, it works incredibly well. Yeah. It's, it serves all the, the functions, as you mentioned, a lot of the connections are with journalists or mm. platforms that we might syndicate our trips onto. People want a personalized service. When was the last time you phoned up your bank and you just spoke to a computer and you're just like, oh my God, it yeah. just kills something in you, in the human soul. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if people meet you face to face and I'm like, oh, I just came back from Ethiopia. I was running a tour in uh, the Southwest coffee country. Here's some coffee. Do you want to try some? They're like, whoa, this is okay. I'm not saying they're going to buy a holiday from us necessarily, but it definitely gives you a yeah. better chance. Use some kind of interest there exactly. and they might talk about it. And Exactly. Yeah, they, they will remember you anyway. Exactly. Yeah. And we just take down their phone number and email. Sometimes neither yeah. of them, they just want to take a brochure. But even that works for us. And then once you've made that face-to-face contact, they're much more willing to, to open your emails and, and, mm-hmm. and look at your newsletters and hear about what you have to say. What would you say is your main marketing channel? How does your website play into generating new customers? And you mentioned your email list as well. Which one do you think is generating the most leads? People need to hear about the website. They can find it through a certain degree through SEO, search Mm. engine optimization. And I think we're definitely getting better at that. The longer the website's around, the more links we have to it from other prestigious websites or newspapers and things. Yeah. The, the higher up it's coming. I went through a pay, phase of paying for Google Ads. It's not a road I wish to continue down. You can tip as much money into that well as you want. It can be problematic when you're asking somebody to hand over quite a lot of money from an ad on, on Google. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. people are distrustful. And yeah. that comes down to, again, as we mentioned, the face-to-face. But uh, without checking out of the, the question, it's actually a combination of yeah. all of these things. I think studies have been done where your client needs three touch points before they'll agree to a sale like that Mm. you might meet them or they might click on an ad and see your website but then they sign up to your mailing list then they get an email then they see you on social media then they make a inquiry then i give them a call then they buy a holiday it's not one thing no one sees an instagram post from us and goes wow that looks great i'm going to book that holiday right now it just doesn't happen (laughs) that would be nice but yeah, yeah that would be excellent so all of the, the touch points, I said, will contribute. And social media for us is just a great reassurance. We post pictures, our clients post pictures. You can see people actually on the trips that we're talking about. And people say, oh, these guys are doing what they're saying they're doing. And it's, as I said, it's more of a reassurer than a direct sales tactic at the moment. Maybe we're doing it wrong. We probably are. It's definitely not my strong point. But at the moment, I'm going through more traditional sales strategy of, meeting people, getting good articles in papers and in magazines, and then just calling people up and talking to them. It goes a really long way. Yeah, you've got a multi-channel approach. As you mentioned before, the ads are just one stage of the funnel and they might see you. And then the next time they see you, they're going to trust you even more. Yeah, it's a, a few stages before somebody might sign up. Staying on the, the topic of tech, 
Do you have any must-have software products? These can be apps or software on the computer or internet SaaS products, services, anything that you definitely need to run your business. We do need more investment into the website, but that will come a bit further down the road. Then you need a CRM system. Don't spend a lot of money on something like Salesforce until you've got at least like 100 employees. As great as it is, and I've used it in my corporate career, it's very expensive. They're super yeah. cheap ones, but you need to keep a track of people you're talking to. You're going to forget mm. these people you speak to. I'll call someone and, and, and chat to them, and then after two weeks or a month, that's it's gone out of my head. Whereas on the CRM, I can just write down, oh, she just came back from a holiday in Costa Rica. Her son in Germany is interested to go traveling with her. And the next time I call her up, I have that information to hand. She's, wow, this person remembers me. Yeah. And it's not in a creepy Machiavellian way. It's just in an, it's just being an organized way. It's organized professional. Yes, exactly. It's just professional. You call yeah. her, that same person up two weeks later and you say, oh, hi, this is Sam from Yellowwood. She's, yeah, we spoke two weeks ago. I'm like, and then it's ruined. <laughs> so you need to be organized with the CRM system. Which CRM are you using at the moment? Just one called PipeDrive. PipeDrive, uh, yeah, I know. It, yeah. It's, it's not super expensive. It's pretty good. Just pay on a monthly basis. Then you need email marketing. We're just using MailChimp. Everyone uses MailChimp. I think people just expect that from a small company now. I don't think people get MailChimp emails and, oh, this, these guys must be small. It's working for us anyway. We have a relatively good open rate. One really powerful marketing tool is that I write a newsletter every two months. And this goes back to my friend Freddie in Germany. He sent, uh, sorry, Holland. He sent me a book called, oh, I'm trying to remember the name. It's just about the power of a newsletter to change a business. I can look it up. Yeah, we can add it to the show notes. Yeah, Add it to the show notes. Yep. And it does what it says on tin. It was just a company that made jeans in America and interestingly became too successful early on and then canceled a lot of their marketing because they had too many orders and they couldn't fill the orders. Amazing. They then filled their their... their stock liabilities or whatever it's called they built they made enough jeans to sell to their clients and then realized that they had no pipeline of business because they'd actually stopped and so then like had to start the company from scratch to, to win new business and they didn't have any money so the guy just started writing a newsletter about jeans and they just went stratospherically successful and i live a pretty interesting life that our clients go to interesting countries we're doing cool stuff and every two months, I just write an update of that and send out a newsletter. And the following it is getting already is really quite significant. And people talk about it. People come to the trade shows. They're like, oh, yeah, we get your newsletter. We really liked that one of your clients donated trekking boots to the porters in Ethiopia and stuff like that. So anything you can do to personalize your company and your your interaction with clients is hugely effective. You must have some funny stories from your trips. Do, do they end up on the newsletter or do you keep those for <laughs> your clients? Yeah, some are suitable for, for, for publication and then some are. One, yeah, one I meant, I haven't actually written about it on my newsletter, but maybe I should. But one, you find yourself in all sorts of situations, which is part of the attraction I love about doing this job. But two years ago, we took a group uh, of tourists to the World Nomad Games in Kyrgyzstan. Oh, yeah. Now, not a lot of people have heard of that. It's It only happens every two years. They've had three games. And last I heard, Turkey, because Erdogan, the Turkish prime minister, went 
to the last one. When I was there, I saw him in the, the opening ceremony in a stadium there. Nomad Games is basically the Olympics for the nomadic peoples of Central Asia. So they do horse racing, archery, wrestling, all of the traditional, well, nomadic games from, from that region. And it's a really fantastic spectacle. They do eagle hunting as well. And so I had a group of 15 tourists, which is actually too many. After that, I capped all of our groups at 12 because 15 was a bit unmanageable. But the opening ceremony is this huge, spectacular occasion with fireworks and all this stuff. And <clears throat> they had this app in Kyrgyzstan. It was mainly in Russian, but there was a very limited English version, which I got. And you could only buy tickets for this opening ceremony on the app. And then I was in Kyrgyzstan leading another group at the time and could only, they launched it in one evening. And this was like three weeks before or something. And it sold out in one day, these tickets to these shows. Wow. And I had 15 clients and I'd only been able to buy online about 10 before they sold out. And I was like, oh my God, this is an absolute disaster. <laughs> this is, you. Yeah, it's you wor worse than not getting any. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it only happens once every two years. This is what people have paid for, and I haven't got them tickets. I'm like, okay, time to turn on the hustle. I had a few connections in Bishkek, the capital. I knew a, a government official who was involved in organizing the World Nomad Games. <clears throat> I was like, surely there must be a way to, to get my hands on some of these tickets. So I end up going to his nice office and we're chit-chatting. And lo and behold, they have held some back for government officials, in inverted commas, whatever that means. I pay some money, a healthy amount of money above the prescribed price. It doesn't matter. I secure the tickets I need and we're all fine. So we're sitting in his office and this has all been done. And I'm about to go, but I'm like, we're waiting for one of his staff to, to bring me the tickets. I'm like, oh, I should probably make sort of some small talk and conversation. And I hadn't been to the games two years previously, but I knew they'd had a celebrity come and open the games. And you wouldn't believe it, but the year before they'd had Steven Seagal, the American action hero, come. Yeah. Like, I can imagine. Guy, yeah. A Russian with, citizen now. Yeah. yeah. He's a what, sorry? He's a Russian citizen. Is he? Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. Kyrgyzstan's ex-USSR. Yeah. I'm sure he's well connected. And I think his wife was Kyrgyz. Anyway, there's, there's a connection there with him and who I don't really know. But anyway, he's almost like a comical character. He's quite a big guy. He's got, he wears funny little orange glasses. He's got a ponytail. They dress him up on uh, full armor, plonk him on a horse and lead him around the stadium. And I'd seen videos of it from <laughs> two years ago and it was all pretty funny. So I'm, I'm sitting there in the office with the guy. I'm like, oh, so... You know, who have you got? Which celebrity are you going to have to open the games this year? Jackie Chan, maybe? And he's, oh, 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 and it's funny. And then he goes, oh, no, actually, we haven't found anyone yet. But he knew I was British. And he goes, you're from the UK. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm from the UK. And he goes, you, maybe, can you get me the gay man with the piano? I was like, what? <laughs> with the piano? And I was like, Elton John? <laughs> he goes, yes. Yes, he would be great. I was like, I'll see what I can do. Yeah. <laughs> and then you just find yourself in places like that. And then yeah. it's just, it mate, whenever the job gets hard, you've got memories like that. <laughs> yeah, I'll make that call to Elton John. Yeah, yeah. Can't guarantee it. But yeah. <laughs> great one, yeah. Yeah, so I just want these stories. Are, I'm sure you've got endless stories and this is really interesting to hear. But do you think... Anybody that's interested in starting a travel-based business, do you think guiding companies 
you have experience of uh, working in a corporate environment and now running your own guiding company. Do you think it's something you'd recommend to people? Should they be absolutely passionate about visiting foreign countries? I, I can imagine this isn't for somebody who doesn't enjoy walking around the mountains in third world countries, for example. But is it something you'd recommend to uh, a budding entrepreneur? It's a good question. I'm obviously completely subjective because I'm doing, I found a niche that I'm, really love doing and I'm passionate about but travel's big doing this investment round I've had to actually go and do some real research into the stats of of this market so to narrow it down to talk about just adventure travel and adventure travel comes into two categories itself you get hard adventure travel which involves real physical exercise like trekking or horse riding or abseiling down canyons or sailing even or wadi bashing and stuff like that that will be considered hard adventure travel soft adventure travel is actually just going into an exotic country being in nature and or seeing local cultures as well so it's a huge broad spectrum and because travel is now available to more people than ever the markets and this is according to the uh, ATTA which is the adventure trade uh, and travel association it's growing at 65% per year. The, the market itself, just no one wants to go online on a beach anymore. People want to do stuff. Instagram has upped the game for everyone. Everything is more accessible to more people. It helps the human population just doubled in the last 40 years as well. Yeah. So the market is just enormous. So the, one, the first thing you look at is, do I have a market to sell into? Yes, you do. So that's the first one. I think the most important one is travel is so broad, you have to find your niche and you have to find something you're good at and you have to provide a solution to people. You just saying you're a travel company without being very specific about what that is within this huge market, you you can't please everyone and you're not going to make it. We focus on small group adventures because it helps keep the cost down. We've run bespoke trips. But they're very expensive and it's not the same market for us. I People call me up and they're, they're considering a group trip and then they can't make those dates or whatever it is. And they're like, could you put a bespoke something together for me? And I'm like, honestly, I'm not going to do it because it will cost three times the price and you're going to say no. You have to be very sure about what it is you're trying to provide to people and then just stick to your guns because the right people will find you. You can't be everything to everyone. So is, you know, would I recommend it? Yeah, it's great, but you have to pick a side or you have to pick an, an, a niche and stick to that. Yeah. Just a couple of quick questions, uh, if you still sure. have a little bit of time. Is there anything you wish you'd known before you started out on your, your journey into forming Yellowwood Adventures? Uh, that's a great question. Honestly, no. And I think I'm learning as I go, for sure. But... A lot of, because my career wasn't in travel before this, it was in international financial media, in producing international events, which has a lot of crossovers in terms of logistics, sales, marketing, what have you. So a lot of the core skills I had from my previous career were very much transferable. I just didn't really know a lot about the ins and outs of the travel industry specifically, which I'm learning along the way. But I've said this before, that was really actually worked in my favor because I just did my own thing. I just followed my own instincts. I didn't try and copy other companies. I didn't try and 
do what a lot of travel companies do, which is just offer, they'll go to a country, meet the local operator there and then offer their products. I'll just go to a country and make my own trips. So mm. that, which is very kind of stupid and naive in a way, but also you're then offering something that's unique and then you do have a USP as a company. So in that way, it really did work in my favor. How would you define success or how do you define success in your future projections for the business? Oh, that is also a really <laughs> interesting way of looking at it because I'm sorry I didn't give you this question before. No, no, so no. This is, for the, anybody listening, this is a, yeah, the first time you're hearing this question. <laughs> no, I prefer it like this because I think you're probably going to have a more honest answer. Yeah, yeah. I think success is you just have to be happy with what you're doing. And then success is obviously going to be represented in the figures of making more sales, taking more people on holiday, but also just having happy clients. We do our best. We've had some mixed reviews from some clients. Things didn't go their way. We're taking people way out of their comfort zones. When you go from working in an office in London to then hiking in the mountains of Africa for five days, that's a big, that's a big shift. And people can react differently to that. People can get quite emotional. People can get angry about sort of small things and, and stuff like that. So obviously we want clients to be happy that's a huge measure of our success and we're always taking that feedback on board and then putting it back into the itineraries and and the company but i feel like i'm already there with success in terms of i like what we're doing as a company i like the roads that we're able to go down and i hope it perpetuates itself to be larger we're still we're only in the fourth year in it's not like i've got loads and loads of money out of the company and bought a beautiful mansion in the country which is yeah definitely another version of success and and long and hopefully that will come to pass in the future but i just feel like i'm on the right road and that's good enough for now for sure this is a double question here but where's your personal favorite destination and your dream future destination somewhere you've never been before so my favorite destination i have to be again chicken out and split it between two yeah, because the company started in Ethiopia, and it continues to be our. We offer eight countries now, but Ethiopia is still our most popular destination, just by number of trips. And I think that's just obviously because we started there, and word word of mouth has really got out, and it's what we're known for best as a company at the moment. And it just never gets boring for me. It's funny. I'm quite a restless person, as as you could imagine obviously want to keep traveling and going to new places. Like I've probably been back to Ethiopia between um, 18 to 20 times. I haven't actually counted. And it's just, I always like it. I just always like being there. There's just something about it. And that's quite special to, I think, find a place like that you never get. It never becomes a chore. I just love going back there. And there's always something new. And then one that was a runner-up but is actually coming tying now as joint first position is mongolia it just yeah yeah it's there's i've definitely spent less time in mongolia than i have in ethiopia but it's just one of the last great frontiers of the world it's the popular it's about the size of a good chunk of western europe but the population is three and a half million three of whom live in alambatar the capital it's just space it's Mm. real nomadic peoples they've got forests Gobi Desert, steppe, 
wild grasslands. They've got the Altai Mountains. In the west, they have the Kazakh Mongolian eagle hunters, and we're going to see them in September. They still dress in traditional clothing. In the north, you have the Taki. No, sorry, not the Taki. The Taki is the wild horse, the, the Taiga tribe who ride reindeers through the snow and live in teepees. Yeah, it's just stuff you've never even heard of. And it's still there and it's still how it was since the beginning of time almost. People have got trucks, but apart from that, they're still living pastoral lives. Their diet is pretty much just dairy and meat. They're nomads because they have to move their flocks around to, to keep good pasture through the hot summer months and the freezing winter months. That's why they're nomadic. And it's just, they're wonderful people and it's just a country I feel so excited to continue exploring. Again, I just love being there. When you're out in the mountains riding on a horse and you've got the big Bankar Mongolian dog trotting along beside you, I don't know, it's an indescribable feeling. It's amazing, yeah. One more place for the bucket list. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It should be put out, put that one right up to the top. Yeah. Those two yeah. continue to be my favorites, and that's not putting down any of our other destinations, but sure. they just yeah. resonate very strongly with me. And then in the future, I'm very excited to go to Pakistan and the Hindu Kush. I've been reading my degrees in English literature. I did my dissertation on colonial history. It's just that whole region. Have you heard of the Great Game? Yeah. It was Yep. Yeah, so I read all of Peter Hopkirk's books. And then, of course, there's a lot of novels that come out from that period of history, most famously Rudyard Kipling's Kim. Mm. And yeah. I read history as just the normal history as well. Yeah, I read and a bit of uh, William Dalrymple, who writes about not, uh, he's written about Afghanistan. Yeah, I, I ordered a book of his that arrived today. It's called, it's something like the High Mountains or the Magic Mountains. It's the one he wrote about Lebanon. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. very good. So I've read, yeah, I've read a few of his, but I haven't read that one. That literally arrived in the post today. He's fantastic. And yeah, so it's just an area of, that I've always wanted to go to. And pa Pakistan is really growing at the moment as a tourist destination. It was mm, hit okay. really badly after 9-11, obviously. Yeah. yeah and has taken a long time to claw its way back onto the to the international travel market but it's definitely one of the more nascent destinations at the moment so i'm very excited to go there and i'll just squeeze one more in just because sure. yeah. it's hard to pick one the other place i'm really keen to open is in chilean patagonia so not right. the patagonia of Argentina, which, you know, is a very well-known tourist destination with Torres Alpine and all the rest of it. I don't feel like there's much value I can add there. It's quite saturated with hiking companies. <clears throat> but the that they've opened quite recently national parks in the Chilean side, which then they've given back to the government. And they just look absolutely wild and untouched. I want to go there. Awesome. <coughs> Excuse me. Thank you for giving us an insight into your business and giving me another 10 places to, for my bucket list. Hopefully I'll get to uh, a few of them this year and maybe even with you. But uh, where can people learn more about you and more about Yellowwood Adventures? Where would you like to send people to the website or social media or elsewhere? Yeah, just go check out our website, yellowwoodadventures.com. Sign up to our newsletter and just get in touch. You can just send us a 
an email it comes through to to us we'll get in touch and it's just good to to, to start a conversation these trips aren't for everyone they're not super super cheap either we're not running backpacking trips we're certainly not doing luxury either it's middle of the road we have bought all the tents we are supplying the guides we have chefs and you pay for that so it might be something people save up for but just get in touch and we're always looking for <clears throat> new opportunities to, to to meet new potential clients and create partnerships as well we're working increasingly now with charities in every country that we operate in if you just have an idea or, or want to put something forward like that then you know you never know what comes out of, of just connecting really brilliant thanks very much sam and best of luck for the future thanks so much thanks for having me on the show. cheers cheers bye-bye